Hey, it's Ian Altman. Be sure to join me in the same side selling academy where people just like you are taking their business to the next level. And the best part is through the middle of November, it's totally free. So I hope to see you in the same side selling academy. Just go to samesideSellingAcademy.com. Hey, it's Ian Altman. On this episode, I'm rejoined by Tom Webster. Now, Tom's the guy who is the principal author of a number of widely cited studies in digital and social media. He's also the vice president of strategy and marketing for Edison Research, who you probably know best as the company provides all of the exit polling for the networks during the U.S. elections and primaries. So if you're wondering, like some people, hey, what happened in the last election? Tom shared an amazing piece of insight at a recent keynote I saw him deliver. And I was so compelled by it that I asked him to join us on the podcast. So without further ado, you're going to learn a ton about market segmentation, polling, and how to hit your target customer from Tom Webster. Tom Webster, welcome back. Well, it's uh it's very kind of you to have me back, especially since I, I just wrecked the show last time. Well, you know, I appreciate I mean, that. Well, I figured once people stopped writing in with complaints, it was safe to have you back on. Yeah, they've got the taste uh, rinsed out of their mouth by now. So <laughs> I, I, I appreciate a second chance. Of course. And anybody wondering, no, Tom was a very, very successful guest in the past, but, um, but now you're prompted to listen to the prior episode. So before we dive into our topic today, can you share with the audience something surprising that they may not know about you? I can. Um, so we're going to talk about data, and a lot of people know uh, of, of my work in data and research. But what many people may not know is that I was once a, uh, a, a teacher of rhetoric and composition at Penn State. So really? I, 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 yes. I taught undergraduates uh, how to construct arguments, how to, how to write, basically. Uh, I taught that to freshmen for a couple of years and, and, uh, for a while that was my career path. And then I realized just how much I like money and I, <laughs> and I, I went for money instead. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why, um, I, I'm, I'm always, you know, leery of people that say, oh, I'm no good with numbers. And, uh, I, I sort of hear that the same way I would hear, I'm no good with words. Um, I kind of think you have to be both to make it. No, I, so there you go. I, absolutely, I think that's true. So we're we're gonna talk we're gonna talk in great detail about about kind of you know how people measure and the results of campaigns and the insight we get. But when it comes to people evaluating even marketing campaigns, business campaigns, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make that might really handcuff them from finding the right answers? Well, it's an easy one to make, Ian, and that's cherry picking data. And we can't help it, right? We have we all have our own filters. Uh, we we go in looking at data, and whether we want to admit it or not, oftentimes we're looking for data that backs up a conclusion we've already drawn. And if that's what we're looking for, we're going to find it every single time. Uh, well, you you will never not find that. And so, uh, you know, the way to get around that, obviously, to have fresh eyes look at it, but also to to view data as just as information and not evidence. And if you gather as much information as you can, instead of gathering evidence, you, you might be surprised at the conclusions you draw. But it, it really comes down to, are you looking to prove a point or are you really looking to find out what happened? Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, it's a perfect segue to our topic, which so for, for people who, who weren't there, 
I, I just I was at the Marketing Profs B2B forum and Tom delivered a talk on in essence what happened in the in the 2016 presidential election and the lessons we could learn from that to apply to business. And what was amazing to me was how you could take something that strikes such a chord with people emotionally and make it entirely apolitical and and make it so people could see the lessons within it without it getting dialed in to their own preconceived notion of what happened and we're going to do we're going to do the same thing here today so start with with kind of the the foundation in terms of and and just let's remind people of a little bit of the background of how much history at Edison you guys have in reviewing these exit polls for the presidential election yeah, so we've been the sole provider of exit polling data to the major news networks since 2003. And uh, as you might imagine, it's a it's a pretty high-profile job. It's a high-pressure job. It's the biggest content marketing project in the world in a lot of ways because that's essentially what we are providing for the networks. Uh, so we've done that since 2003, and we are now also the – provider of the vote count, the actual vote count data to the news networks. We just added that to our portfolio this year. So we have, uh, I, I don't know what's larger than gigabytes, Kasmuji uh, uh, bytes or something. We have many, many bytes of data uh, on the elections. I'm sure. And, and, and I know that uh, there, there, were some, there were some things that you shared in your talk that just, we all sat there with, with our jaws dropped. What, what, are some, what were some of the most surprising insights that you saw in the election. And then rest assured, everybody listening, this is going to be fascinating. What I love is how Tom will then help us map that to how you can apply this and the lessons you can learn in your business. So what are the things that really stood out for you as interesting? Well, I want to start off with one thing that uh, is sort of the underlying question I always get whenever I tell people what I do. They ask me the same two-word question. What happened? And th that's an interesting question to ask. And, and I remember uh, after the election, the very first podcast I was on, uh, they had this whole panel arguing about how uh, polling was dead and polling didn't work anymore. And one of the things that I, I quickly tell people is that not only is polling extremely good, it keeps getting better and better and better. And, and in my talk, I showed a graph of the uh, basically the error rate since 1936 of the national pre-election polling. And back in 1936, when the uh, the basically there was a, a, a magazine poll was the first big straw poll done in this country, uh, called Alf Landon to be president over FDR in a landslide. So that one was off by quite a bit. But it turns out that the actual national pre-election polling here in the U.S. for 20 for 2016 was off by just a little bit more than a percent. Uh, it called Hillary. For, by 3%, and Hillary's actual margin of the popular vote was 2%. So polling was pretty good. But what surprised people were all these probability calculators. And I hate those things. They can die in a fire, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, they're, not, they're not pollsters doing them. They are people with calculators doing them. And they're essentially taking and any investor, and I know many of the people listening to your, your podcast, Ian, or investors know that past performance is not indicative of, any, of future guarantees, right? Uh, <laughs> We're looking at sort of past election patterns and projecting some kind of predictive probability that Hillary Clinton would win. And, you know, the New York Times had one up that said there was an 86 percent chance that she would win. And Nate Silver had one up at uh, 538 that said there was like a 78 percent chance that they would win. Well, here's the thing. There has never been a Hillary Clinton Donald Trump race. 
So attempting to project the you know, predict the probability of a thing that has actually never happened before. You don't even have sample to do that. But what's the uh, probability there will be one again? No, no, just kidding. <laughs> well, I don't know because I think they they took it on the chin uh, on this this coming election because a lot of people watch those calculators and believe me, it's absurd to watch one of those calculators uh, go from basically from one hundred to zero in the in the span of a few hours. I think it's right to question the calculator. So people were surprised by that and uh, and they wondered what happened. But why people were so surprised by it and why so many people – and again, you know, we have constituents on the left and on the right who purchase our data. So we have, to, we have to look at this objectively. People were so surprised by it because they couldn't understand it. And the reasons why they couldn't understand it are, are really kind of basic and, a, and almost a, a, a central existential question for marketing, in, in, you know, marketing period. And that is they didn't understand the other. And the other in this case – were the millions and millions of people who voted the way that they didn't vote. And that's true on both sides. We simply no longer have the ability to discuss things with the other. We don't understand the other anymore. Um, and you know, one of the, the reasons for that, and really the primary reason for that, is just how much the population has changed and moved and migrated over the past 50 years. Um, you know, One of the things that I showed in the talk was – a map of the uh, the 1960 presidential race between Nixon and Kennedy, and I showed this by county. And if you look at, and you can you can Google this, look at a at a county vote map for 1960, you'll see that North Carolina was a blue state, South Carolina was a blue state, Alabama, Georgia, Texas was a blue state, New Mexico was a blue state, Utah was a blue state. You would be shocked to look at that map, uh, and and oddly. Cape Cod, uh, here in Massachusetts, where I live, went for Nixon. Wow. And the reason why that was, was because back then, uh, as soldiers came home from World War II, liberals, conservatives fought together, lived together, moved into suburbs, really the first modern American suburbs together. They worked together. They drank at the same bars. And they talked politics. They talked to each other. They had debates. They didn't have knockdown, drag out fights. They just had debates. But gradually, over time, just through natural organic migration, our neighborhoods have become more and more homogenous. And it's not necessarily a conscious thing, like I need to move where more Democrats are or I need to move with more Republicans. But look, you get a new job, you look around neighborhoods, you, you say to yourself, I like these people or this school system seems good. And you just kind of end up with people that think like you. And this has happened more and more and more. And now, if you look at a 2016 electoral map, look at this by precinct, you will be shocked at just how homogenous it is. There, and, and I showed uh, a, a couple of charts in the talk where I showed various precincts in Pennsylvania where there was not a single vote cast for Hillary Clinton and other precincts in Pennsylvania where there was not a single vote cast for Donald and Trump. And in a given precinct, you're talking about hundreds or thousands of votes in that precinct mm. And every single person in that precinct voted for one candidate or the other. Yeah, I'm not even talking about a rounding error. I'm talking about zero votes. Um, yeah. It was actually – it was even slightly starker. There was some third-party candidate action in 2016, which muddied it ever so slightly. It was even starker in 2012 when it was Romney and Obama. There were 59 precincts 
in Philadelphia County, Pennsylvania, essentially the counties that make up the city, there were 59 precincts where there were zero votes cast for Mitt Romney. And there were nine counties or nine precincts in Cuyahoga County, where Cleveland is, where there were zero votes cast for Mitt Romney. And Obama won 47 of the top 50 cities. So we have these incredible homogenous concentrations. And regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, uh, you know, think about the House of Representatives. Regardless of how you vote, there's probably someone in the House of Representatives that you think is a complete loon, that you just cannot understand where they're coming from. You think they're crazy. You think they're voting counter to the interests of their constituency, whatever side you're on. But here's the thing. I guarantee you, when that rep goes home to their precinct, they're going home to a precinct where 85% of the population agrees with them. Yeah, that's so, the thing so no matter how people, crazy they are to to someone to to the average, which yeah. doesn't mean anything, the average says, oh, that's crazy. In fact, it's probably not even the average. It's probably more, look, people who don't think like that person think they're crazy. And people yeah. who think like them think everyone else is crazy. Exactly right. And we look at these things and, you know, one of the things that uh, drives me crazy are, are marketers that sit behind their desks and look at dashboards of data. I'm a data person, believe me. I love me some data. But those dashboards are not going to tell you these things. They're not going to give you the objective reality of the facts on the ground. I, I remember uh, I, I once lived in, uh, in New York City, and I lived in a building that was predominantly rent-controlled apartments. And once you've got a rent-controlled apartment in New York City, you're in it for the long haul. You're not going anywhere. And it, I remember that my floor of that building, you know, the average age of my floor was probably 45 and if you were sitting at you know, Fidelity Investments or something and you got that piece of data on a dashboard, you might start carpet bombing my floor with you know, uh, equity funds, right? Sure. But in reality, of the eight apartments on my floor, there was, there was me and I was in my you know, mid-20s. And then there were seven other people on that floor that were you know, anywhere from 100 to 180 years old because they were <laughs> in controlled apartments forever. So it averaged to 45, but nobody in there was thinking about equity funds, right? I was scraping by eating ramen, and the other seven were already living off of bonds and annuities. I mean, that, it's, that, that's what happens when you sit back and look at dashboards, and you don't get to the objective reality on the ground. So, so the, the, the so the real problem here is that too often people are looking at the average or the most frequently asked question or the most frequent answer as opposed to marketing at a more granular level to the individual. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's really one of the big messages of my talk. What is uh, that the the best way to win in marketing is to out segment your competition. Uh, you know, keep segmenting until you're you're at a, a one segment per customer, if need be. And the the reality behind that is that you know one of the common political arguments I will see people make on things like Facebook, uh, as people begin to argue facts and and things like that, is you know you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. I've seen that retort any number of times. But here's the thing: you actually are entitled to your own facts because facts differ depending on how you draw their boundaries. And there's a lengthy explanation of this in my talk where I look at some economic data. One of the the kind of hallmarks of some of the Trump – of many of the Trump supporters uh, in the last election from our exit polls and from some work that we've done with Marketplace is that a a significant percentage of them, a majority, don't believe government-supplied economic data. 
they don't believe the statistics that come from the government. And for some of you listening here, you might think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you disbelieve government statistics? But here's the thing. I can point you to a whole raft of government statistics that look incredibly positive from the average. The unemployment is incredibly low. General life and life expectancy is up. Uh, you know, I can point to a whole bunch of, of things like that. But I can also point to the fact that the the roles have gone down. The the labor participation rate has gone down. Life expectancy amongst people in the lower 20% of income has declined precipitously, while that of people in the upper 20% has risen precipitously. The jobs that have been lost, millions of manufacturing jobs in communities in Wisconsin and Michigan and places like Youngstown, Ohio. And I can look at average statistics, economic statistics, and say things are pretty good. But if I draw my boundaries for that data around Youngstown, Ohio, things are not pretty good. This sounds like this classic example of, on average, these things are better. But if it, but if I don't see it that way in my neighborhood, then I just assume that whoever came up with those those statistics was on crack or something because it couldn't possibly be right. Because my exactly. reality is not what you just showed me. Not only is my reality not what I just showed you, it's not the reality for my neighbors or my yeah. neighbor's neighbors. And, and this goes back to that homogenous precinct point. If I am surrounded by people that are in the same dire economic straits as I am, then these statistics don't matter. And if I'm not surrounded by people, I live in downtown Boston. I'm surrounded by – I'm in the bluest dot of, the, of one of the bluest states. I'm, I'm surrounded by people who are not in dire economic straits. So I can find it very difficult to believe that the opposite is true because my objective reality on the ground is very, very different. Now, Tom, one of the things you shared in your talk that just blew me away was the level of granularity or the market segmentation between the different campaigns. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I have to give this sort of big preamble about what has happened in America and, and this bit about objective reality and, and things. But tactically, here's what happened. The Trump data team were exceptional at tailoring messages at the hyper-local level. One of the things that they did that was very smart was they acquired the voter registration rolls from the RNC. And what uh, that data contained were a couple of really golden data points. Number one, email address, and number two, zip code. And I can tell you as a demographer and a, and a researcher, your zip code, your nine-digit zip code especially, is about the most important thing I can know about you. If I know your nine-digit zip code, I can almost tell you how much change you have in your pocket. It's how good that can get. And if I know your nine-digit zip code and I know where you live and I know your email address – well, I can dump a list of the of those email addresses into Facebook custom audience, and I'll match about 50% of them. And I will not only know where you live, but I can start to sample conversations. I can see what people are talking about, and I can see the exact language that they are using to talk about those things. And so what happened was instead of having, you know, in, in B2B uh, marketing, we often talk about personas and a company might have three personas or five personas that represent the kind of different ideal customers. Well, the Trump data team had 20 voter personas. And literally, as Trump would go from city to city in the kind of blue wall states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, he would go city to city and be handed a stump speech that would reflect back the language and the issues of that hyper local area. Of that place that, you know, he often talked about uh, different communities in, in you know, upstate New York and Ohio as devastation. 
And when you when you don't see that, you don't believe it. But he was going to places where that was, in fact, the objective reality on the ground. And he was using the language that those people used in social media reflected in the talks that he was giving. So it was truly tailored messaging. Uh, and if and and you know, with the help of 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 his data team in doing that, they simply outsegmented their competition and they flipped those states. And and so in contrast, the Clinton campaign. If the Trump campaign had 20 different personas, how many did the Clinton campaign have? Um, not enough. Uh, and I don't know that, that we're going to know the full story on this. But, you know, one of the things that is true just objectively on the outside was that the, the Trump campaign um, with the work of, of the data team ran on many different local messages and they rolled up to a number of bigger messages. But on the ground, it was many, many different messages and the uh, the the Clinton team did not run on quite so many messages, and in fact, uh, a lot of what they ran on was essentially an anti-Trump message. You know that resonated with some, but it wasn't quite as tailored and as hyper local as the message that Trump ran on in so many of those cities. Yeah, and that's that's something that that just when you were when you talked about it, just made all of our jaws drop, which was that notion because you know I would I would watch, you know, the different candidates speak. And in my mind, what was happening was looking at it from one location was, man, I mean, Trump's message is all over the place. Like he's using this terminology here, this terminology there. Like this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And while Clinton has this consistent message through and through over and over, that makes a lot of sense. But of course, Trump was thinking, look, I don't care where this is being televised. Right now, I'm speaking to the people who are in this room who are going to be moved to vote one way or the other. Yeah, and he really had uh, isolated some areas of the country that uh, that were more in play than I think people thought. And, you know, again, Clinton did win the popular vote. And the, the reason why Trump won was essentially he flipped two or three states that uh, the Democrats have typically counted on, the, the blue wall, basically, yep. Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Um, and he and he flipped them because those were those were uh, states that have lost you know well over a million manufacturing jobs. And again, objective reality was different on the ground in the places where he spoke. And that's the central message of all this is you know get out from behind your desk, put the dashboard away, and figure out objective reality on the ground where it is you're marketing. Because you know rolling things up into averages and 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 dashboards and things like that, that's a, a shortcut which is useful if you if you know what's behind it. But if you don't really know what's making up all of those numbers, it can be incredibly dangerous. So so what are the two or three things that marketers should do to get better results from their marketing? In essence, what are the lessons that come out of this that should yeah. wake up marketers to say, ah, you know, and, and I get hey, get out from behind your desk. But tactically, what does that look like? What should people be doing if they want to get better results? Well, the first thing I would suggest is, and again, I'm not, I'm a data person, so I'm not saying throw your data away because that would put me out of a job. And I, I do this to put food on my family. So keep asking <laughs> for data. But uh, start doing ride-alongs with your sales team. Your sales team knows objective reality on the ground. And I think if you're a marketer and you're not doing regular kind of ride-alongs with the sales team, if you're not meeting a customer every week, if you're not taking a customer out to lunch every week and, and understanding that, you know, Oliver Outsource is not a person, is not a persona that you need to be writing to, uh, you need to be writing to Janet, who actually lives and actually exists. 
You need to meet Janet every week. And if you could do that, if you do some ride-alongs with your sales team, you will add color to flesh out all the marketing data that you're getting and, and you'll, you'll create more compelling marketing. And, you know, the other sort of big takeaway from that is that, uh, especially with content marketing, as more and more companies in the same niches are doing content marketing and the kind of uh, average skill level is evening out, then the only way to win when most of the players at the table have a similar skill level uh, is to work very, very hard for marginal gains. And that's just the way it is. So if you want to win in an area where you have uh, difficulty differentiating your message and, and perhaps your marketing is not as differentiated, the only way that you're going to win is is to just outwork uh, outwork your competition. And the way that you outwork your competition, if your competition has five personas, you need 20. If they have six segments, you need 30. And yeah. believe it or not, that's an easy way to win. Because if you do that, if you do have the discipline to keep segmenting and segmenting and segmenting until you are, until you are sort of uh, not talking to abstractions, but really talking to people that exist, you're, you're going to win. And ultimately, with the advent of as, as AI creeps into marketing more and more and makes our marketing more effective at the personal level, segments and personas are just going to go away. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a it's a great lesson because too often people say, "Well, so our persona is this," and I'm thinking, I don't think that's representative of all of your customers. And you may have come up with a persona that is lukewarm to everybody. I'm thinking, if I'm marketing, let's say to doctors, if I'm someone who's selling a solution to doctors' offices, I can either say, "Oh, if you're a doctor's office, would love to talk to you," or I can break my message down that says. We have a solution specifically geared for radiologists in this city. And all of a sudden you see that message and you go, wait a minute, that's me. I'm a radiologist in that city. Now, guess what? Because of marketing automation, because of all the data we can get, we could actually have a similar campaign that's talking to pediatricians in a different city. It sounds like that way we can have a message that's laser focused at that specific audience. Yeah, absolutely. And and really the biggest mistake people make with segments and personas is to make them product focused. Now imagine that you worked at uh, a toy company, right? Imagine that you make My Little Pony. That's your job, Ian Altman. You're the, you're the marketing director of My Little Pony. How did you know? If, as I know, and I, I know you have a strong affinity for My Little Pony. <laughs> if course. you were sitting in your, uh, in your boardroom with your marketing team, you might design some segments, let's say, and you might have a, you know, a segment that is uh, eight-year-old girls, and you might have a segment that is uh, toy collectors, and you might have a segment that is the parents of eight-year-old girls, right? And so you design these product-focused personas that talk about the features and benefits of the product and the, you know, the, the high polymer plastics and how realistically brushable the hair is and things like that. Well, here's the reality. There's three groups of people who buy My Little Pony. One is eight-year-old girls. You got that nailed. Two, cosplay enthusiasts who dress up at Comic-Con. And three, bronies. And if you don't know what a brony is, a brony is a grown-ass man who buys My Little Pony and, uh, <laughs> they, and, they, and they go to, to conferences because of the values that My Little Pony espouses. Uh, look up the brony sometime. That's a rat hole that you will enjoy for, for years Dude, to come. Listen, I'm scared to do that search. 
Yeah, it's a it's a rich pageant, um, the the brownies. And the thing is, if you're making product based segments, then you're you're talking about the you know the plastic and the brushable hair. But if you're really marketing to who's actually buying these things, you're talking about the values uh, that the My Little Pony espouses. You are talking about uh, the you know the fun of dressing up. Uh, you're talking about a whole bunch of things. Yeah, what's and the day in the life be- of that person? Not not via your product. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you take any three disparate groups of people, let's say you take, you know, just for example, eight-year-old girls, cosplay enthusiasts, and bronies, or any three groups, they've all got one thing in common, Celine Dion. But that's about (laughs) all I can tell you. Uh, That's about all I can tell you. You can roll any three groups up to, well, Celine Dion's okay. Um, And that's what you get at that kind of abstract level, especially if your personas and segments are really different to each other. Uh, what they have in common is actually not that helpful <laughs> necessarily. Well, with that Celine Dion reference, I think we're going to wrap. So, Tom, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and to and to learn more about what you're doing? Uh, my so my day job, you can find me at EdisonResearch.com. Uh, we put out a lot of non-political research. I know uh, we've talked about podcasting before on the show. We've got a lot of research on that right now. Uh, my personal blog is brandsavant.com, and um, I'm on the Twitters at Webby2001. Excellent. Well, Tom, thanks so much, man. This is, I mean, it's so enlightening. Anybody out there, if you get a chance to see Tom speak about this or have him come into your organization, I will tell you that I, I was watching this with a half dozen of my fellow speaker friends, and we all just sat there in awe and said, oh, my God, more people need to hear this. It's really compelling to help people get a different perspective on how they can win in today's world and how things have changed. So, Tom, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you, my friend. Tom is just amazing. And if you have the opportunity to bring him into your business and give this talk, he will blow people away. Let me give you a quick recap of the key things I think you can use and apply to your business right away. First, dashboards are overrated. You want to make sure that You're thinking about your neighbor's reality, not your reality, and narrow down your target audience at the fine granular levels. Remember, in the 2016 election, the candidate that won had over 20 personas, and the one who didn't had far fewer. I want to thank those of you who take the time to post reviews and comments. It really makes a big difference. If there's a guest you think I should have on the program, just fire me a note to ian at ianaltman.com because remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.